Welcome to an honest conversation on health, serving up discussion and perspective about what health really is. Your health, your responsibility. There's simply no way around it. It's time to own it. You have what it takes. All you need is the knowledge. That's where I come in. I'm your host, Julie Brown. I love this shit. With a nerd's eye view, I'll share the knowledge and help you bring it to life with conscious action, love, and laughter. You've got this. Welcome, everyone. I have with me today Dr. James Lundeen from Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. I invited him here today as an expert in vitamin D and COVID. He is an electrical engineer, chemist, pharmacologist, and medical practitioner. In addition, he has developed a state-of-the-art receptor binding data analysis software. I've appreciated his contributions to my learning over the past year, and I'm thrilled to bring his knowledge to you. Dr. Lendine, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here, and I'm here to talk about vitamin D and its importance in COVID and the importance uh, through for all good health. Agree, COVID and beyond. Let's start with a really salient question to, on people's minds. How does vitamin D affect COVID risk? Vitamin D can prevent, in most people, uh, de developing the clotting associated with the SARS infection. COVID is the illness which results from the infection. Just because you have a virus positive test in your nose or throat does not mean you're sick from it. But a um, number of people develop mild symptoms. Some don't appear to develop symptoms. And yet some go on to develop moderate to severe where they need medical care or hospitalization. Most of the people who need that are um, obese, type two diabetes, cancer, heart disease, they have underlying pre-existing condition or conditions sometimes mentioned as comorbidities. And most of those stem from chronic vitamin D deficiency. Hmm. So it's the chicken and the egg, right? The, Correct. The health conditions lead to the vulnerability, but the vitamin D deficiency leads to the health conditions. The, if your vitamin D is within the normal range, and I don't mean for bone health, but for immune system health, then you're not likely to develop these long-term chronic conditions. They could be like MS or cardiovascular disease, or kidney disease, type two diabetes. A lot of these things are simply because we let ourselves go a bit and aren't keeping track of our nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. And vitamin D is one of the, it's the only thing we call a vitamin. Truly, it's a hormone, right? It's the it's only thing hormone. We, we call a vitamin that we actually cannot fulfill from nutritional avenues. That's right. Right. So in mitigating the risk to severe COVID, the disease from the, you know, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, what are the mechanisms that support this process being mitigated? The uh, vitamin D can be, uh, you can obtain it from sunlight in, in certain areas of the planet with certain times of the year and a certain amount of intensity. Most of it comes from fatty fish, 
or chicken eggs, dark chocolate, mushrooms. It's very limited, very limited sources uh, in your, for your diet. And um, the fatty fish, unfortunately, have a certain level of mercury because there's that much mercury in the oceans and in rivers and streams. I have a concept for developing um, production of various vitamin D species uh, from raw ingredients rather than uh, trying to deplete the stock of the ocean. Mm. What's that? Uh, some sort of a fermentation process where yeast can be used to uh, develop cholecalciferol, calcitriol, and calcitriol because different people need to be supplemented separately at different for different reasons, different metabolic reasons, or because certain certain things are blocked. So just measuring the, the middle species, the twenty five hydroxy. Uh, usually, the practitioners think, well, if that's adequate, you're fine. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee it's going to go on to the calcitriol, uh, which is the 1-alpha-25-dihydroxy-D3, which is the active form. And I think that's a great moment to give a slight primer to the listeners here, because if we talk about vitamin D metabolism, really from the point that we get it from the sun, and then you can maybe just break down for people this understanding of how it has to go through a process in the liver and then in the kidneys in order to arrive at its final destination of the active form of calcitriol, correct? Yes, the, the initial form uh, involves uh, uh, cholesterol and you get one hydroxy group from the sun and then it has to go through the liver to get a uh, hydroxy group at the 25th position on the multi-cycular uh, ring. Uh, there is no amine group and they're calling it a vital amine is a misnomer. Hmm. And then it has to go through the kidneys where th there's an interplay, a direct interplay between parathyroid hormone and, and, and the uh, 25 hydroxy version, the, the intermediate version. If you have parathyroid hormone, the kidneys can convert it and add the third hydroxy group at the one alpha position. If you don't have parathyroid hormone, you don't convert. And so when we any. supplement with D3, we have to absorb it in the gut and then it has to go through the same process. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And absorption can be impacted in, in many ways from uh, people that, that have absorption problems in general uh, or low in B12, there, there are a number of, of important things. You also have to take uh, magnesium to, to make D, the active D work properly um, in the nucleus of the cells. And uh, uh, other supplements are, are also important like vitamin K2 because higher doses of the, of the calcitriol require K2 to properly, uh, to help the D, D3 work properly. So that, sorry to interrupt, that synergy you're talking about is at the cellular level. It's not at the absorption level. That's correct. Correct. And are there particular synergies that we need to be considering when we are supplementing with D3 at the level of consumption? 
for absorption? Uh, if you take it with calcium, you're going to limit the amount of D3 that you can take because you can't run your calcium too high. Uh, that, that could interfere with the, um, the rhythm of your heart. And if your calcium's continually quite high, uh, you'd be more inclined to make stones of your gallbladder kidneys. Right. So D3 is fine to take on its own, and, and, but we need the magnesium later down the process in order for it to become effective at the cellular level. Magne magnesium and, and the K2 if you're taking high doses. And the K2 if you're taking high doses. Mm -hmm. Okay, so actually this might be a nice moment to talk about what is a healthy vitamin D level for immune health? And then let's just compare and contrast that to vitamin D levels for bone health and what is typically offered up by various regulators as the recommended daily allowances. Shall I start with bone or immune? Let's start with bone and work our way up. All right. Well, with bone for children, 400 international units and adults, perhaps as high as 800 international units. And that seems to suffice to suffice for bone health, but it also has to do with how high you may grow. Uh, people who are, are they may not, may not have rickets, which would be bowed legs, but they cannot grow to their full potential height uh, due to the, the low level of vitamin D. Hmm. Um, when you're told to go out and play in the summertime, you have some opportunity to get a little bit there. Um, some people's diets are not focused on making sure there's plenty of vitamin D overall. And I would think most people probably don't think about supplementing children with vitamin D for fear of toxicity that, that pediatricians instill on the population. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to the toxicity, you know, discussion in a moment. What would that, what does that translate to as, as far as a blood level? And yes, they measure that middle species, right? They measure the, the 25 hydroxy. Yeah. Between the liver and the kidney. In the yeah. That, that level would be below 30 uh, nanograms per ml. Yeah. So for bone health. For bone okay. health. Okay. So now let's pivot up to immune health. Immune health. Uh, let me talk about adult dosages. Sure. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. For immune health, and particularly in the in the context of, of COVID, um, the numbers from various authorities vary considerably from 2,000 to 5,000 international units per day. Uh, for some people, uh, they need to take 10,000 to get their levels up. Sometimes it takes uh, rechecking your levels to make sure you're maintaining once you attain a good level. Mm -hmm. A good level is 45 to 100 nanograms per ml. And you're not going to find any government who's saying that. No, there are none saying that. Every recommendation, and I've checked quite a few um, different government recommendations around the world just as a as curiosity, and they basically all still recommend for bone health levels. Absolutely. And in Canada, if we look at even at bone health levels, we have a significant number, our percentage of our population that is 
deficient. And we certainly have a very big population that is suboptimal in terms of immune health levels. Most, most people, 80% of the planet is suboptimal. Um, if you're below 30, you're at risk with, with COVID. If you're below 20, you're at high risk. If you're below 10, you're not and, and are hospitalized and not supplemented, you'll come out uh, with a toe tag. It's that direct a correlation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And people okay. on ventilators, you can be sure their, their levels are between 10 and 30. Well, and you know what I find quite amazing is that we're not, we don't seem to be, to my knowledge, checking that. No. On admission. No, that's vitamins. You can deal with that when you get home, if you get home. Right, if you get home. But in fact, it's one of the most important hormones in our body and has thousands of processes. It, it certainly does. Every cell in the body has a vitamin D receptor. Including numerous immune cells, correct? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's, let's look at one of the major issues in severe COVID being the, related to the clotting that you mentioned earlier and vitamin D's impact on this. It's through what I understand to be through the fibrin, fibrin, fibrinogen. 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 Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about that association, the inverse relationship? Yes. The vitamin D level can control the fibrinogen level uh, it, by, by lowering fibrinogen from whatever starting point you have. You want your fibrinogen to be mid-range of the normal range, which is generally two to four grams per liter. The, if you're in a high normal range, you're still at risk of clotting. So you really wanna be mid-normal range around three grams per liter. When, the, when it gets up to three and a half, four, five, and some people get up to 10 or 12 grams per liter, those people are not, not gonna make it because of clotting. When it gets up to that point, it triggers some of the mast cells, macrophages, uh, monocytes, and viral infected epithelial cells of the, of the, of the lungs. It triggers those to make more locally because generally fibrinogen is made in the liver. And it also uh, activates platelets. It makes it ready for clotting. And uh, tissue factor, which is factor three, is also reduced more abundantly. So it's a combination of fibrinogen, which is factor one, clotting factor one, tissue factor, which is clotting factor three, and activated platelets to begin the, the clotting uh, mechanism that distinguishes between mild or moderate uh, COVID. And the more you clot, the more severe it is. As you clot, you're creating millions or billions of little microclots, which impact each of the alveoli cells of the lung for air exchange. And it can also cause uh, buildup in arteries and veins, can cause stroke, uh, myocardial infarction, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary emboli. 
So the key to preventing morbidity and mortality in COVID is to not let the clotting begin or to cut it off as, as rapidly as possible. Yeah, I have to let that one sink all the way in. So the cascade of events that happen is triggered by the high fibrinogen. High fibrinogen. Also, the uh, D3 can help to stabilize some of these cells from um, some of the mast cells, monocytes, macrophages, and such can help stabilize those from degranulation. And it's the degranulation process that releases positive uh, proth I mean, prothrombotic cytokines. Uh, some people argue it's not a cytokine storm. It is. Yep. Yeah, that seems pretty clear from a lot of angles anyways, that it's this around that day seven, eight, I guess. Now, is that is it taking that long for the fibrinogen levels to rise in those people that are reaching that severe COVID at that pivot point, day seven? Well, the if, if they come in with metabolic syndrome, which is prediabetes or type two di diabetes, and, and that's a large number of people, um, their fibrinogen is already high because it correlates with their obesity. Right. And it doesn't take much. And they may already be at the level that if, they st if it starts interacting with those various uh, cells, uh, that it's going to initiate a, even a low level of clotting, which is found in some people who never had any symptoms. Wow. So it okay. doesn't have to be a massive storm. It can be a low level generation of clotting. Okay, and so fibrinolysis, the breakdown of fibrinogen, yes, can be triggered as an event by a bolus dose of vitamin D. The vitamin D, um, I don't know if there's quite a, a, a direct that way, but what you want to do is get your fibrinogen down. A bolus dose of vitamin D will bring your fibrinogen down in about 96 hours to normal range. Okay. That's what I'm, that's what I was mining for. So that, that's, really, that's of, really the mechanism there. Right. The vitamin D taken as a D3 supplement as a bolus can bring down the fibrinogen levels. And I've even found from personal experience that I shared with you mm -hmm. uh, that with I was, uh, had a recent hospitalization for bacterial pneumonia, which was a red herring was a positive COVID test and a negative COVID test, but it turned out that it was bacterial pneumonia. But as after I got out of the medical intensive care unit, uh, they were trying to keep me on tight glucose control. So they were giving me insulin. I don't normally take insulin. Uh, I, I, I would put myself in the metabolic syndrome, not quite type two diabetes, but nearly there. And it was bringing down my oxygen sats. So after each insulin, I, my sats dropped at least a point or, or two. Hmm. And I asked them to reconsider and put me on metformin or something else and take away the steroids. And they weren't changing the protocol because that was in a certain study. Hmm. But you managed to pivot things. I managed to pivot things. Mm -hmm. But you have an extraordinary amount of knowledge 
with which to to do that. So it's it's certainly a challenge for people in the face of of this situation. Um, it, it is, but um, I found that that daily ten thousand for three days brought my sats up from um, ninety on six liters to ninety two to three on room air, and I was discharged. Well, that is good news indeed. But I I actually let's talk about that ten thousand because I just learned yesterday that you can absorb 10,000 IUs, like international units, in 30 minutes of full sun in, you know, climate, depending on where you are in the world. Okay, let's depending. say. Depending yeah. on how much sun, how much skin is exposed and whether you have sunblocker on, there right. are variety of things, you know. So assuming optimal absorption, you can, and conditions, you can absorb up to 10,000 international units in 30 minutes, but that doesn't, continue. So in 20 minutes or in 60 minutes, you haven't absorbed 20,000. It, it levels off, which kind of tells me from a nature perspective, 10,000 as a, as a bolus dose is what we can absorb quickly. Yes. Is that why you chose that? It is. Yeah. So that sort of speaks to when we're looking at people needing to get their levels up because they haven't been supplementing at all. They may hear this podcast and go, wow, this is compelling information. I haven't been supplementing. You know, what is a good program um, in order to bring my levels up and then I can drop it down to maintain it? But you still have to double check it from time to time with a lab test. You want to be sure it's maintained. You want to be sure it's maintained. Yeah. So I checked mine last year and I was quite, so we measure here differently. We're in, um, milliliters per nanomoles and my level was 83 and I supplement and according to if we translate it to the levels you've given us that's sort of around 100 here would be immune and that, health and that's considered more than sufficient or or completely sufficient you don't really want to exceed that the 100 yeah that's yeah. correct so at 83 that was me supplementing and I and I wasn't anywhere near the hundred, right? Um, and I take, I take larger doses, but only once a week. Some people do that. If it's easier to remember it, take it daily. Some people take 50,000 uh, under their uh, medical provider's uh, uh, advice. I don't know whether that in your area, it has to be prescribed if they're 50,000 or if you, People can obtain them otherwise. I actually don't know. I've never seen a dose like that. So I wouldn't, I'm not aware. I think it's for people with, with certain conditions. Right. Not necessarily for COVID. I, I, I don't recommend more than 10,000 IU per day just because I think you can get that completely absorbed. Right. Yeah. And it, uh, at higher levels, you have to worry about calcium issues. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, from an even an evolutionary perspective, because in the modern world, we're seeing such massive amounts of deficiency for immune health levels. And I think there's a number of variables there. It's our modern lifestyle, for sure. We're inside a lot. But we also know that there's some environmental toxicities that are playing into our ability to absorb vitamin D and then our ability to transfer it into usable forms. 
Can you maybe speak a little bit about that in particular? Yeah, herbicides and pesticides can block the interconversion of the uh, dietary or sunlight uh, version of D3 to go to the intermediate, which is the 25-hydroxy D3. It, they can also block uh, any 25-hydroxy D3 that might be there from going to the 125-dihydroxy, uh, the active form. Uh, glyphosates, as found in Roundup, a very popular herbicide that's used by farmers and many people around the world uh, has been shown to have this um, inhibitory effect. Depending on, the level, depending on the level of it, it will either cut down your production and interconversion of these different species or at a high enough level would block it. And really at all three gateways, right? In the absorption level, because we know it can impact the, the microbes in the gut. Certainly. The, at the enzymatic level in the liver. Correct. And also in the kidney. In the kidney. And yes. if it's impacting one, is it impacting all three? Or do we not know this? Um, from what I've read from the literature, it, if it impacts one of these, it's impacting all of them. Right. It's pretty much the same cytochrome P450 enzyme in the liver and kidneys. And, and an additional um, aspect on this toxicity that you mentioned earlier when we weren't recording was actually high fructose corn syrup. Absolutely. And so that has the same impact, but pr primarily on the enzyme in the liver or also the kidney? I'm not sure about the kidney. Yeah. But I can certainly vouch for the liver. Right. And if you, so, if you only get it to the intermediate form, you're on second or third base, you haven't hit a home run yet. You don't have any active to, to it's the active form that gets into the nucleus of the cell to do what it needs to do. So there's quite a lot running against people in order to be vitamin D replete currently. Absolutely. Sunblockers. People think, well, I'm going to go out in the sun, but I'm, I don't want to get burned or get melanoma or squamous cell carcinoma. So I'm going to put on some. Then they go out and work in their garden or do something. They're not getting much effect. Uh, in some parts of the world where sun is very abundant, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, a number of places, they adjust their daily lifestyle and work schedule such that they're really not out in the, in the direct hot sun all that long. So places where there would be adequate, people aren't availing themselves of it because it's too intense. And our, our modern living, we have a lot of air conditioning and climate controlled indoor living spaces that people tend to. Um, modern gravitate. living has really, has really changed it. Absolutely. There are uh, a couple of endocrine, endocrine deficiencies or abnormalities that can also uh, block these stages. If a person has a benign pituitary adenoma that's giving off too much growth hormone, it blocks the first step conversion to 25-hydroxy. You don't have any of that, you can't go on to active. And for those who, who are born without uh, parathyroid uh, glands or who have had thyroid surgery and, and their parathyroids aren't working, uh, they don't make the parathyroid hormone to convert 25-hydroxy 
to the 125-dihydroxy, the active form. So what avenues are available for those people? Like, are there supplements available at the, you know, calcidiol or calcitriol level? Uh, there are, and the, the one at the calcitriol level is often given uh, after a dialysis treatment. So it's just a level of threshold where that gets invoked. That's correct. So we really know that the best way to absorb it is through our skin if it's available yes. to us. But there Correct. is really, we have to talk about the angle of the sun. And in places like Cleveland, Ohio, or, um, you know, southeastern BC, where I am, we're not getting any throughout no, the none. entire winter. No, none. And there's no way, especially given all these barriers to absorption, that we can and the transferring that we can actually absorb enough in the summer to see us through. Oh, no, no. The half-life of uh, uh, the active form is about four hours. It's very short-lived. Well, it is, but it gets absorbed into the nucleus of the cells just about as fast as it can be produced. And it's, and it's not stored in adipose tissue. The uh, initial D3, the, the, the weakest form, I'd say, the cholecalciferol, um, has one oxygen and everything else is carbon. It's really more or less like um, a petroleum product at that point. It only has one oxygen and the rest of it's carbon and hydrogen. So it's very fat-soluble. Fat the next step where you have two oxygens, it's uh, more hydrophilic and less, less fat-soluble. And at the third step, even less fat-soluble. Okay, well, I think that one thing that's come up quite often is that maybe the public health and government recommendations are so low for vitamin D because there's a concern around toxicities. So can we talk just a moment about what levels need to be at in order for vitamin D toxicity to be relevant? I would say that if you're above your 100 mark on, your, on the scale that you were mentioning, where you were at 83, uh, I would, there would be some level of concern above that. And uh, most of the people who are advocating for 4,000 units, 5,000 units, 10,000 units, say you don't want to go above that hundred mark. Okay. I think that's cautionary. It may not, it may not, uh, the, the D directly being toxic, you have to have pretty high levels, but it's the calcium that it brings up that really is the big deal. If you okay. get your calcium too high, you've got, you have all, can run into all sorts of problems with uh, cardiac rhythm, and with stone formation. And I guess really the biggest takeaway here, I think, is that really you got to get your levels checked because with so many barriers oh. to absorption and so many metabolic considerations as to how well you're actually even absorbing your supplement, let alone the sun. And they're measuring only one species. Now, the active form, I would have no problem with that. 
you'd have no problem taking a higher. But, but, but otherwise, they're, 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 it's a, a faith as to whether or not if you have the 25 that you're going to make the active because I've mentioned a handful of things that can block it. Right. And if you don't get the active, they, what people argue is each, each species is helpful. I don't, I don't know if that's well established. But if you, if you have, if you have this middle species, the one between the liver and the kidney, right, which yes. is what they measure in the serum levels, Absolutely. Then, then the chances are that it's not, you know, environmental toxicities that are blocking you because you wouldn't have made it all the way there. Right. Kevin. It's more the parathyroid piece that would be the blockade on the kidney. Well, and the fructose. Depends how much of the high concentrated fructose syrup you ingest and from what source and how regularly. Right. So it gives you an indicator, the serum levels, but it's not a, it's not a certainty. It's not a certainty, no. And it might be that you have so much chronic kidney disease from low D that you destroyed your kidneys and you're about to go on dialysis and you're still, it could impair your ability to uh, convert at a sufficient rate. It, it just could be a very low rate. So none of these are on off switches. Everything in life is a spectrum or a gradient. Right. And there's a lot of unique expression of our own health within our systems that can vary us from person to person. Absolutely. So, I mean, I don't really want to spin too far into any politics here, but it, it leaves me quite perplexed as to why are like the governments around the world maintain such a low level of recommended intake for vitamin D when it's not sufficient for immune health, when there is a buffer to toxicity. Um, it seems to me it's a failure in, in a pandemic there are a lot of stakeholders, and if you want to uh, touch on this, I'm, I'm not political. There are a lot of stakeholders, pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, medical providers, intermediates uh, that supply things. If people, if everybody is tuned up to, their, to, the, to the D for the immune system and stayed there, the incidence of comorbidities and the need to go to the doctor or go to the hospital, it would plummet. It would be a sea change. So we need a civilian uprising and a claiming of health. And we don't want, we don't want to deplete the, the, the fish stock of the ocean streams and rivers either because with 7.5 billion people, if they're each eating a fish a day, I don't think there'd be many fish left in a week or a month. Right, which brings us to kind of an environmental supply issue. Absolutely. Chicken eggs are good for 40 units a day each, but if you eat more than two large chicken eggs, then you're getting into too much uh, cholesterol. And vitamin D3 comes from lanolin, correct? The lanolin from the sheep wool uh, they can get some D3. It also has some D2. Um, and some people are allergic to uh, the proteins in the sheep wool, which are not completely removed from uh, that source. In that process. So, so, so there's a concern whether or not there could be some allergic problems 
getting it from the, apparently the sheep wool gets real thick with oily substance, which is called lanolin. And so it's, it's a, a source where you don't have to kill the sheep to get it, just like wool and shearing a sheep. Um, it, it, has, it has that potentiality, but I don't know how many people would be adversely affected. I don't think it would kill anybody. There may be an allergic reaction. So what are the other sources? Like, where do we get, you know, basically we see the world is deprived or deficient in vitamin D. That's 80%. A lot of people. Yeah, at least 80%. So how do we solve that in terms of access to vitamin D for that many people? I think it needs to be uh, made from, uh, I think it needs, needs to be generated synthetically in a lab to match exactly the molecule so that you don't have the contaminants of, of the uh, sheep wool or the mercury of the fish. It's a very complicated molecule to make. Normally it takes 70 steps and it has a 1% yield overall. Wow. So it's, it, there's a big roadblock, but there's some new, I, I have a master's in chemistry. There's some new uh, approaches for uh, synthetic organic chemistry, which might be able to do it in a set of 70 steps, maybe 10. Hmm. So how can it be so inexpensive? If it's like, it's a challenge to make, there's limited resources to make it from. Why is it the lowest hanging fruit in terms of cost? I don't know if everybody ordered it regularly. I'm not sure that it would be all that readily available. Right. So, or they get it from, they get it from fish fat. They get it. Now you could also get it from uh, eating beef or other meats. You get a certain amount of D3 from whatever that animal had. In it. Right. If they were eating, um, well, no, it'd be from their sun absorption. Correct. From their sun absorption. Right. All right. So. And if you I, freeze I, that I, meat. I have, I have turned vegetarian in the last year, but um if you had to bring your, your D3 up, chicken, eggs, and eating meat uh, could help, particularly if you don't have much sunlight or if you don't have any source, other adequate source of it. And if you freeze that meat, is the D3, is the, the D preserved? Should be. Yeah. Hmm. But, by, but by cooking it, it might diminish it somewhat. Right. Yeah, I'm also, that's not a source for me. I'm also a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> I eat, I do eat eggs and I do eat fish as a way to try to make sure I have all my amino acids, but I don't eat meat. Let's let me allow me to play devil's advocate here for a moment, please, because the I've, I've heard from people when I bring this up with various other health professionals, you know, why are we not across the board saying D up? And some of the commentary are from studies that have shown that there was no effect. You know, one that we talked about earlier in Journal of American Medicine um, that was from Brazil, Brazil, right? And then there were others in, in kind of in around, I think it was around 2010, that they started looking at how vitamin D didn't have the same effect that people had previously shown in studies. And I, I kind of want to go there because as people hear this, this is such a simple thing to change. But if they have barriers or limiting beliefs, I want to help take them down. So can we talk a little bit about some of those studies? Certainly. Um, 
the study from Brazil, uh, first author was M-U-R-A-I, I believe, uh, was designed to include people who had, who were 10 to 14 days um, from exposure and very symptomatic. It used an oral, single oral loading dose, as I recall, 300,000 international units. And someone else has, has talked about that article, mentioned it was 200,000 units, but it's, it was somewhere in that range. And their primary endpoint that they were gonna track on that was length of stay in the hospital and other factors less important to them were morbidity and mortality. Absorption is a big problem. The fact that it's 10 to 14 days in and they're symptomatic means the clotting cascade and the cytokine storm's already raging. Length of stay is dependent on getting your oxygen saturations up, which means you have to have adequate fibrinolysis. You have to get your fibrinogen level down because high fibrinogen level depresses oxygenation and SATs. So, um, and if the D-dimer, uh, the D-dimer is breakdown products of the fibrin by the process of fibrinolysis, it's important that the D-dimer go up after treatment because it means it's breaking down the fibrin. But if the D-dimer continues to escalate, you may be breaking up a pulmonary embolus or a deep vein thrombosis. And if it's a deep vein thrombosis, you may get a pulmonary embolism next, which might stop, uh, which, which might be your endpoint of your life if it blocks the valves in the right side of your heart. So you have to, I think the D-dimer needs to be monitored much more closely along with the oxygen sats. And um, I read an article where uh, a doctor tried to use urokinase intravenously to sort of fight the storm but it was, wasn't a battle he was able to, to win with that um, because it's hard to deal with it as the clots are forming. Uh, you, you want to you get your D level up so your fibrinogen comes down and that'll cease the storm. And you can do that rapidly within a few days. But you want to do that early. As early as possible. And you know, as soon as you get exposed to somebody who has a dry cough, Start your D. Mm -hmm. Why if not? You if you're not already on it. If you haven't already. And what's and the timeline? Um, and a baby yeah. aspirin. Baby, I'm sorry. Baby aspirin. If you're at risk of high fibrinogen levels or across the board? I would say pretty much across the board unless somebody is really their normal weight. Ideal weight. Right. And even then I take the baby aspirin and I'd take some D each day, maybe a thousand units, and you're really in ideal health. But there's so many people on this planet who are above their ideal. I, I actually read a study recently that showed that only 20% of people are metabolically healthy. Well, that would go along with this 80% thing. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I find that quite interesting because I'm pivoting away from our, our discussion. I'll bring us back. But... We, we of course have seen a younger population becoming hospitalized. And this for me, you know, my definition of health is not the absence of disease. 
And the messaging is, but these young people were healthy. And I say, well, the absence of disease does not define their health. What was their nutritional status? What was their, you know, their weight? What was their vitamin D level? Were they consuming adequate zinc? What was the mucous membranes? Were they intact? Um, I find that to be a really important conversation that's not happening that much these days. No, it's not. People don't want to spend the resources when they think their kid's perfectly normal and chubby as heck. Uh, I, I, I made comments as, as politely as I could on a number of articles where children had died. And just by observation, uh, some of them were morbidly obese, meaning twice their ideal weight or 100 pounds over their, their ideal weight and that heavy and maybe nine years old and 200 pounds. And um, another thing we haven't touched on, but it's, it has to do with getting D from the sun. It has to do with the amount of melanin, melanin in the skin. Yes. Uh, many people who are Spanish or African can't assimilate uh, a significant amount through the skin just because of the melanin presence. And that would also go for people uh, from Italy or Middle East uh, who have pigmentation. And so, as, as we've globally relocated, we've challenged that even further. That's right. I actually, I actually read a reference to Sweden who in the early part of the pandemic had quite a few quite a high mortality that 50% of those initial losses in the very early days were in refugees who had darker skin. Yes. Who would have been, you know, quite a bit more vulnerable. Well, absolutely. Particularly at that Northern latitude, where are you going to get any D from the sun up there? They're getting it from fish. They're getting it from fish. Finland and, and Norway eat a lot of fish and their stats were better for a while than Sweden. And, and Japan as well, right? Japan as well. A any of the subtropical or tropical areas have so much sunlight. Uh, they generally grow and produce uh, pineapple. Pine pineapple has bromine in it, which is a mixture of, of enzymes that can be orally absorbed from the gut that are fibrinolytic enzymes. Bromelain is fibrinolytic. It is. I did not know that. Along with niacin or niacinamide. And there, there are a number of things that claim that you can absorb them, that they won't be degraded. Uh, most enzymes and, and proteins that you get in your stomach, you, it breaks, the stomach acid breaks it down. You don't get uh, much absorption of the whole molecule. But a number of these uh, claim that, uh, that, that they're helpful. Hmm. Well. I certainly appreciate all your knowledge on this topic and your generosity of your time and sharing. And I'd like to just kind of wrap this up for people here. Clearly the, the takeaway message is know your levels and D up because it affects way more than your resilience to this infectious pressure that we're under with, with SARS-CoV-2 it affects why you might be at risk in the first place. 
to SARS-CoV-2. Absolutely. And that really nobody can escape supplementation. No. Unless you're at the equator, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> if, you're, if you are living a less modern life there and you're outside a lot. Because at the equator, you can get a certain amount of conversion almost every day of the year. Right. From UV, UVB. UVB. Right. You're within 33 degrees north or 33 degrees south of the equator. You can, you can get conversion from the sun. Well, thank you, Dr. Lundin, for your time and thank your you contribution time. to our listeners. May you pleasure. all go D up. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so very much for joining me today. Together, we can light the way to better health for you and our planet. You can help make this happen by subscribing, sharing this with a friend, and reaching for the stars in a review. If you would like to join me in a conversation or have a request, please reach out. I'm all ears. Check out juliebrown.health for resources and tools to help you on your way. Stay curious and keep learning.